Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. It's another of our topical bi-weekly uh, editions. There's plenty to get our teeth into with the Tory leadership going from policy to policy to policy to policy. Plenty to discuss there. To join us, we are very happy to welcome uh, former think tanker extraordinaire, now the Telegraph sketch writer and columnist Madeline Grant. Madeline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for being here. It's great to be here, thanks. And as ever, our deputy editor, Alice Denby. Alice, welcome. Hello. Right, guys. I mean, there have been so many different policy announcements this week. It's kind of difficult to know where to start. But I think we'll kick off with a kind of general question, which is what kind of campaign are the two candidates running? Because last time we had a very sedate campaign because everyone pretty much knew Boris was going to win from the off. I mean, Alice, how do you see it? All the polls suggest Liz Truss is miles ahead, but she certainly isn't acting as if she is. Yeah, I mean, as you say, I don't feel like she's campaigning as though she's a massive front runner. When Boris Johnson was so far in the lead, he didn't bother to do anything, pretty much. Whereas Liz is being frenetic. Um, and to me, it feels like both these candidates are just really slogging it out and battling for every vote. Like, you've got to remember that the selectorate here is tiny, right? It's maybe, I mean, nobody really knows. It's a closely guarded secret how many Tory members there yeah, actually it's are. Weird, isn't it? It's like 200,000, is it 160,000? Like, yeah, huge variations. But, but the fact that we know it's so tiny means that in that room at those regional hustings that they're crossing the country to do, if you can win over a few votes, that could make all the difference. And I feel like that, they, that that's how they're campaigning, that they're really just trying to win people over in the room by announcing policies like... So Liz Truss announced um, that she would expand the seasonal workers scheme. She did that in Exeter in a rural constituency. I mean, she's clearly pitching herself to rooms full of voters. Yeah. I think, Maddie, what's your impression of how... The campaign is going. The sort of Rishi camp line is that the more voters see of Rishi, the more they like him, <laughs> which is just like you would say that. I'm, I mean, the YouGov poll yesterday puts him sort of 30 points behind. I mean, how much can we, A, how much can we believe in those polls given the problems with the selectorate mm. that Alice mentioned? And B, do you think he's having a good campaign? Do you think he's good on the stump? Well, um, as to the polling, I mean, YouGov does, has had a very good track record recently, but as you say, there are innate problems with looking at the selectorate. I mean, my read of, of Rishi's campaign is that he, it's been very muddled, very patchy, and it's been policymaking on the hoof, but actually he's often, as was characteristic of him in Cabinet, he would often make decisions in reaction to things. So he would wait until there was a critical mass of public opinion that says, you should do this, and then he'd say, OK, fine, I'll do it. 
but you do it so belatedly and so late in the day that you don't get any political credit for for the U-turn that you've made. And I think that's sort of what's happening here. Um, having run a kind of safe and steady sort of campaign, stressing that they are, uh, the Rishi team is kind of fiscally prudent, um, sound money, et, et cetera. Um, they then had to pivot on things like tax cuts. Yeah, uh, it was which like energy, ne- wasn't it? Yeah. VAT on energy. VAT on yeah. energy and also income tax, I think, cutting the basic rate uh, there. But again, we yeah. do, you know, it all seems to be very much in flux. Um, and I think that the difficulty with, with what they've done is they've sort of done a bit of the Theresa May thing of like policy by focus groups. They've looked for policies that would be individually popular, they think, with the selectorate without any real, real idea of how that fits into a broader campaign of what Rishi is about. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's kind of patchy, whereas I think Liz has been rather more consistent in the kind of things that she's proposing. And also, I think she has this sort of reputation for being, I don't think she's like an out-and-out ideologue, but more ideologically right-wing than him. She's seen as more of a true believer. But it's, I think it's a feature of this whole campaign that, that, that things kind of black has turned into white. So, you know, mm. Liz is now the kind of true blue Brexiteer when yeah. she was the Remainer and, and Rishi's the, you know, the opposite. It's, it's a very confusing campaign. Yeah, and, and it's part, this is partly the problem with the Sunak camp. They've allowed themselves to be defined in those terms. There's now a race against the clock to try and turn those perceptions around. But I think Liz kind of captured the momentum and control of the narrative quite early on and was able to shape it according to their wishes. Um, and Rishi has always been on the back foot. But I still feel like if you do watch these regional hostings, Rishi is still getting big applause in yes. those rooms. So I do think that on the ground, this is way tighter than it might appear. Yeah, yeah, I think. Yeah, there was an, an yeah. interesting poll from a, a sort of Italian firm called Techno that put them five points apart. Yes. Which everyone got very excited about <laughs> until we got the next one. It was like, nah, it's more like 13. They're like, I don't know who to believe. Well, exactly. I might just have to wait. Yeah, the other, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like, yeah. I do not buy this idea that it's been harmful to the Conservative Party that this argument is happening in public. Have you noticed during the last few weeks we have barely talked about Labour Party? Um, we don't know. We still don't know what Keir Starmer's position is on a range of issues. I think the big Labour story recently has been strikes, whether there's been plenty of U-turning and flip-flopping there. So actually, this is taking up all the oxygen, and perhaps it's no bad thing that this is happening, rather than what happened with Theresa May, which was an outright coronation, and, mm. and look how that turned out. And yeah. it does perhaps mean that whoever does win, it will feel like much more of a reset, because they've had this kind of ideological battle it will feel like the party's in a new position when this is all over. I think this is the great kind of the trust campaign's trick as well as selling her as the Brexit candidate. She's <laughs> selling her as like the new broom when she's been yeah. in government for like eight years. I think she got her first camp, yeah. like ministerial job in like 2013 or something. Um, and has been pretty loyal as well. well. So. It's, it's, I think we're at a time where actually what people are promising is almost less important than the kind of vibe that they give yeah, off. Vibe like politics, politics. Yeah, vibe politics, yeah. I wrote a column about this if, uh, a while ago, and it, I, there were some positions that people held that, that it occurred to me that feel very surprising because it's not how they feel as a person. So, for example, Jeremy Hunt sort of tax-cutting Thatcher Wright, was, yeah, was pro-fox yeah. hunting, wanted to reduce the abortion limit. But this doesn't fit in with... Jeremy Hunt vibes. Yeah. Uh, ditto, Lord Frost voted for Remain doesn't fit with his vibe either. Yeah, but Liz, is, Liz been, is very yeah. good at exuding the right vibe, isn't she? Remain has become a metonym for a whole set of other values that have nothing to do with yes. how you actually voted on mm. that particular question. Yeah, I mean, it kind of scrambled all the political wiring. Exactly. I think, she, I think the thing with her is that she was so recalcitrant. She not only said, let's get on with it, she said, I would have voted Leave. 
if yeah. I could have my vote again. And I think that's what kind of did it for people. The kind of passion. Whereas like Rishi Sunak was like the proto Brexiteer. Everyone was like, yeah. oh my god, if Rishi's going to leave, then we're really in trouble. Yeah. And he never talks about it. Which is the thing that you talked well, about, bolting on policies to your brand late in the day is a bit of a, you know, it's trickier to sell, yes. basically. He does, talk, he does talk about how he voted Brexit when it wasn't he politically now, convenient. He yeah. didn't before. I see, well, yeah, yeah. as he was chance. And there was a, actually, Paul Goodman has a good column in the Times about this today, that, that one of Rishi's problems is that he said, well, when I was Chancellor, I didn't talk about things outside my brief. And this is... And, you know, maybe that's a good thing for a chancellor to do. I mean, but arguably more successful chancellors have expanded into other realms, you know, with George Osborne, the Northern yeah. Powerhouse. What's that got to do with the Treasury? Yeah. Um, and, and this is now causing him problems as like, what does he think on issues outside the Treasury brief? He has been, he was a minister in DCLG as well before he was in, so he's Chief Secretary for the Treasury, then oh, yeah. Chancellor. So everyone's like, oh, he's the Treasury guy, but he has had other jobs. So, you know, maybe he could have leaned into some of that, mm. that other stuff. Instead, he sort of leaned into the business thing, which I don't think is that compelling, really. Yeah. It's like, oh, I work for a hedge fund. It's like, okay. Yeah. You know, like, we'll get onto some of the actual individual policies. I mean, Maddie, you mentioned the income tax one. Um, I, I found that one very odd. Like you said, he's kind of positioning himself as like a sort of fiscal, a sensible fiscal candidate, and then offering a tax cut seven years down the line. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to cut it by 4p by the end of the next yeah. parliament. It's yeah, like, yeah. come on. Like, <laughs> it's like one of those those Brexit forecasts, which is like, we're going to be £4,000 worse off in 2030. Yeah. It's mm. like, well, how, how do you know one way or the other? Um, do we have any particular policies that we very much liked from either candidate? Um, grimaces all around here. <laughs> well, right, we can talk about the ones we don't like. Yeah. Okay. Maddie, any, any that you thought, right, please don't do this if you become leader... Well, I mean, there's there's a few, right? There's, um, I think that there was both candidates have been quite weak on housing, and that's been a real disappointment for me. Um, I, I mean, will be going on a rant about this. Surely, yes. So. Well, yeah. I, I think you you want to talk about Rishi. I do want to talk about the Green, but and yeah. Liz actually, but yeah, like, both been, I'll talk about yeah. Liz first, and then maybe you can mention Rishi, which I think the Rishi stuff is more egregious. So um, maybe we'll have your rant next. But Liz. Um, she said that she wanted to scrap Stalinist housing targets, which I thought was actually a really politically clever promise, even though I, I, I disagree, I just want more housing, whatever that <laughs> takes. Um, I think that's a really clever pledge because it can be, mean different things to different people. So if, if you're, um, let's say you're a Tory member in the South East, the average Tory member is a 58-year-old man who lives in the South East, perhaps you're not crazy about new development. Uh, you interpret that to mean the government's not going to force new housing on communities. So you're like, yes, that's great. But if you're of the free market persuasion, you might hear that and think, oh, actually, the state's getting out of the way. Perhaps there'll be more reform yeah. and liberalisation. A thousand flowers to... bloom. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So it's really, it's like constructive ambiguity. Mm. So it's clever, but that, that worries me because I feel like if you're not talking about the issue of supply, then, you know, you're really missing the integral piece of the puzzle. I also think that, like, giving local people and communities more of a say <laughs> over their area is just a fig leaf for, like, nope. Because mm. you know, like, yeah, yeah, they, they like, were, what are these communities going to say? Exactly. Um, <laughs> it's classic, but, like Lib Dem, isn't it? It's very Lib Dem. Yeah. Yeah. Nimby in theory, Nimby yeah, in yeah, practice. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, my, my thing, so I, I agree with you that both of them have been slightly disappointing and completely agree that the, the housing target thing is a kind of um, best of all worlds, you know, if you can interpret it as you think. So the, the one that really got my go, and a lot of people in kind of think tank land, was Rishi saying that he would basically protect the whole green belt. Um, and I think we'll do just a very, very potted history lesson. But basically, 
The green belt sounds like this lovely natural thing that you couldn't possibly... It's easy to confuse with something like areas of natural beauty, which is separate, which you also can't build on. Um, but the green belt has absolutely swollen in the last sort of three or four decades. It's fallen a tiny bit in the last 20 years, like a few hundred square kilometres, but it's doubled in size since um, Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister. So now, I was amazed to read this. It was our editor-in-chief, um, Robert Colville, did a big thread on the green belt. Mm. And he was like, and one of the stats he pulled out was that the green belt now covers 12.4% of the whole of England is green belt, which is crazy when you consider that the amount of England that is housing is 1%. And at some point, you'd be like, well, this is completely out of whack. And there was a great example. I think, I, I think you tweeted about it, actually, in, in York, of just what the green belt actually means in some instances. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I, d- I remember this, actually. So it's basically like a little pocket of land in between a dual carriageway. Oh, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Housing. I mean, there's endless examples like this. There was a, I remember when I was at the IEA, we, um, we found some, some hilarious examples. There was like an old petrol station that looked yeah. like one of those kind of 1930s dust bowl, like abandoned, and that was Greenbelt. And often there's rather beautiful land that doesn't qualify as Greenbelt at all. Um, but it's, it's just, it's so arbitrary, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's arbitrary and also it's socialist. I don't know why the, the Tories, I think there's a very strong case to make why we're still living in Clement Attlee's world. Mm. Yeah, we, we had a great piece from a guy, Will Atkinson from Conservative oh, Party yeah. saying we're all in. Attlee is basically responsible for all yeah, our problems. Yeah. Um, the, but you said socialist and I think that's, that, that was another thing that struck me about his policy announcement. One was like brownfield, brownfield, brownfield. Yeah, you could build a million homes on brownfield but we need more than that. That's like three yeah. years of the existing housing target, which they want to scrap anyway. And it's anyway. difficult to build on brownfield land. It's, it's difficult yeah. to get the, the buy-in. And often, you know, in built-up areas, there's endless buy-ins that you have to get from various stakeholders. Mm. Yeah. Also, but the socialist thing you mentioned is that he was basically... This policy of guaranteeing greenbelt land is basically telling councils that they can't decide what to do with land in their own area. Yeah. It's a diktat. It's a centralising... As they come. Yeah. Alice, any thoughts on this? I assume you agree wholeheartedly I do, yeah, with them. I, I just feel like the Green Belt couldn't be more targeted at constraining growth. If you look at it, yeah. it's literally kind of a ring of steel around our, mm. you know, our prime economic assets, our, our great cities. Yeah. Um, I know. It baffles me. And, and within our great cities as well. Yeah. That's the, the startling thing. So like a fifth of London is Green Belt. Oh God, I didn't know that. Yeah, there you go. Well, it, it really worries me. Um, well, I mean, one of the reasons... The, the phrase levelling up, again, it's constructive ambiguity, I guess. It can mean lots of different things to different people. One of the reasons it slightly scares me is that I think p- some of the levelling up pushes are pr- partly a kind of proxy by southern-based Tory MPs. If we can displace economic activity somewhere else, then we won't have to start building in our constituencies. Mm. And it's not for government to be making these kind of decisions about where economic activity takes place. They haven't yeah. historically had much success when you look around the world when people have tried um, similar things. And, and also just... It worries me post-Brexit. For me, Brexit was like, was a thing of, like, we're going to look at things that we've historically done very well and really double down on those areas that we're world leaders at. But how on earth is that going to be possible when, you know, people are having to... Academics are unable to live in places like Oxford and Cambridge because it's just impossible to build, um, to, to have viable housing. So people are being yeah. priced out. And the, the whole Oxford-Cambridge arc, oh, which yeah. makes so yeah. much economic sense, is probably going to prove impossible because of NIMBYs, NIMBYism. Yeah, Oxford in particular seems like as big a disaster on the housing front as London in terms of like how high prices are and how impossible it is to build anything. It's the Peter Hitchens tendency. It's, it's he, has, he has campaigned more wholeheartedly than anyone to not build anything anywhere near Oxford. 
Yeah, and and I mean his part, he does sort of have a point that there has been some really hideous development in Oxford, but that's the reason to build things more beautifully, isn't it? It's not an argument that there should be no more development blanket. And I think that Peter Hitchens, you know, as someone who lives in Oxford, it's a beautiful place, but you, I, I think it's hard to reconcile having a kind of romanticised view of Oxford and the kind of ways that people could live when people have been priced out of that kind of lifestyle because of the housing crisis. Yeah. People cannot live the good life anymore. It's exactly the same in Cambridge as well. Yeah. It's incredibly expensive. There was some really like eye-popping stat in the, in the Financial Times this week about lab space, mainly mm. in Cambridge. Where it's, I think Oxford as well, but more Cambridge and really big on biotech yeah. and stuff. And it's like... Demand, it was one side was demand, and then the supply chart was just zero. Yeah. Which is like, I, I, as you say, if we're going to lean into things we do well, yeah. that has to be one of them. We just don't seem to have grasped the nettle at all. Yeah, exactly. and I just think that, you know, that levelling up paper talking about sort of Renaissance Florence, the idea that you're going to recreate Renaissance Florence that. in some, <laughs> like, benighted coastal town is for the birds. Yeah, um. I mean, maybe maybe you will, but it will happen organically, not because the government put its hand on the scales and said, right, yeah. right, over here. Exactly. Um, but the, the signals are all there. That's what's strange to me. Is you don't need to, like, engineer. You can just... You, and it doesn't need to be really expensive from the kind of fiscal point of view to change some rules to relax a bit of the green belt around Cambridge and Oxford and have the kind of to use a slightly Keynesian term the kind of multipliers (laughs) would be incredible um but we talked about you mentioned leveling up that which brings us quite neatly we've had a bit of a go at Rishi so far on the pod so I think we need to level things up in terms of the candidates um so Liz Truss announced something which sort of sounded all right on first pass, but she very, very quickly wrote back, which was this idea that we would kind of vary pay in the public sector, um, depending on, basically, on where you are. I mean, Mm. what do we think about this? In theory, what do we think about it as a policy? Well, I think she got into trouble, basically, because of a figure in a press release, which people... I can imagine how this happened. I imagine when you're being so frenetic and putting out so many policies, they didn't really think, what does this figure actually represent? And this was a few would to actively cut pay for nurses and teachers. Yeah. Whereas actually what she was talking about uh, is, is the fact that in some regions, you, most people are employed by the civil service and that actually crowds out private sector mm. jobs. Um, and there is perfectly good reason for looking again at regional pay. Yeah. yeah. And also some parts of the country, living costs are much lower. Um, mm. And you will be able to survive on on, on less. And in other parts of the country, your salary might not go far enough. Yeah. Um, Oxford, like Cambridge, places like this, not just London. There are some cities that are incredibly expensive to live in. Yeah. Um, but in general, I mean, Liz, Liz is um, the the way that she's sort of changed tack on that particular thing. I mean, I think that gets to a, a real issue that I have with with her campaign, which is that she's talked a very strong game on cutting taxes, but there's been a lot less about shrinking the size of the state. And so it does seem a bit like we're in almost Boris Johnson cakeism territory at times. Um, Because, you know, and it's complicating the the debate about economics because, you know, obviously tax and spend is is so, so important. And what I find a bit worrying is that, so she's uh, committed to reversing the national insurance rise, but she hasn't said anything about what she's going to do to fix the problem that that was for. What? How is she going to do social care? How is she going to tackle the NHS backlog? She doesn't have an answer to that. So it's fair in... I mean, in this sense, it is fair enough to talk about sound money. Yeah. 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 I think I have... Like, with the caveat that I have not been to lots of hustings, and they may have discussed this, I have not heard almost anything about the kind of underlying problems with the NHS. 
mm-hmm. had this kind of emergency plan from Rishi Sunak, which I actually think makes a reasonable amount of sense because the immediate issue is enormous waiting lists and it's we've had endless stories of horror stories of people waiting for years, lots of people having to go private now. So yeah, that kind of COVID style task force to tackle waiting lists is, is, was one of his emergency plans, um, of which we've heard far less than I expected. Because he said at the beginning, oh, I've got five emergency plans. I, I still yeah. don't know what they are. Mm. Um, but we don't hear anything about the kind of the demographic problems, the cost oh, yeah. of treatment, the weird pay scales they have in the NHS, which comes back to the regional pay thing. Yeah, it, it the seems workforce. Like, yeah, it seems like the kind of weird, like it, it is just the elephant in the room at this whole contest and we're not, not really talking about it. It's, it's, it's untouchable still for, for political yeah. reasons. Um, but, you know, someone will have to tackle this at some point because... The way things are going, the NHS is going to be um, gobbling up an ever larger share of, of GDP and unreformed. We're already in a place where you can toss money at the health service and with no real measurable improvement on the ground. And I don't see any sign of that changing without um, some serious reform. But it's yeah. just it's too difficult. I mean, it was too difficult for Margaret Thatcher never tackled it, really. Um, it has yet to be. Yeah, she's <laughs> Maybe like, we need yeah. a Labour government to reform the health service. Maybe it's, it's just it's one too... of those things like Tony Blair is the only <laughs> yeah. Prime Minister who could have the political space yeah, yeah. in a way to Nixon do it. Can go to yes. China thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Or, exactly. Um, you know, perhaps one day only the Conservative Party could abolish the monarchy. <laughs> yeah. No. No, I'm not um, saying that's a good idea. We'll come on to the monarchy yeah. shortly, though. We're going to talk about Scotland and uh, their version of Elizabeth I. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Um, just well, I think maybe speaking about patriotism, perhaps yeah. I can talk about my most hated policy of this campaign, which is, yeah. uh, which is Rishi Sunak saying he's going to criminalise hating Britain. Yeah, vilifying Britain. Vilifying Britain. Britain. I mean, yeah. this policy baffles me because I can't think of anything more British than vilifying yeah. is Britain. It, is, it, can I just pause? is it criminalising? Is it referring to preventing? Referring to prevent. But I mean, so what's that You're mean? down the track to being a criminal, right? Well, <laughs> but what does this mean? We're going to sort of... Trap people into a kind of clockwork orange oh. style chair and make them yeah. watch, you know, montage of the Olympic opening ceremony, like <laughs> yeah. that Penny Mordant leadership video. Oh I mean, God. I just think it's absurd. It's like, it's like it's Captain yeah. Tom Tom Bitten, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I think that there's like a, a more serious oh, point God. to this, which is that 
you know, there's a real risk that this kind of does the extremists work for them. Because, you know, if you constrain free speech without having any real benefits on counterterrorism, when in the 80s, when people stopped Sinn Féin going on the airwaves, it did not stop violent terrorism on the street. Yeah. So I think that this is, you know, a bad idea. Weird. I think when I was about like 10 or something, Jerry Adams on the news was dubbed. Because they weren't allowed to like hear his voice, and I was just like, "What is going on?" Because they just dubbed him with another Northern Irish person. So it was like, no it was way. a very strange thing. And I don't, it That's didn't. Really weird. As That's far like as, something from Barça. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it didn't really have much effect on the kind of terror campaign, as you said. This thing that you were talking about, I think we had a piece yesterday from. So we record this on Thursday, to be clear. Uh, on Wednesday, we had a piece from Ian Aitchison, who uh, is involved with something called the Counter Extremism Project. Um, very much agreeing with what. Alice said, and the thing, the, one of the main points is that point you made about how when we go and try and, try and restrict freedom of speech or freedom of action, well, in terrorist speak, want, it's called a force multiplier mm. because they don't have to do anything, mm. and it, it generates the kind of behaviour they want to see, and it mm. inspires their enemies, and it's this kind of incredible rank vicious circle. Um, but again, a good example, I think, of, of the hoof the on-the-hoof policy-making yeah, yeah. tendency. Yeah, um, yeah. And just, just, I mean, we saw this with uh, Jeremy Hunt earlier in the um, the leadership race, that, that looking for, I guess, eye-catching um, policies that will draw attention to you and, and generally try to change your vibe, back to vibes politics again. It doesn't have to be well thought through. And perhaps secretly people know that this is not going to happen. This is just a kind of thrashing around... Sort of yeah. mad out. Which policy do you mean of Jeremy Hunt? Uh, sorry, Jeremy Hunt. I mean, that you know, teaming up with Esther McVeigh and all of oh, that. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I should have explained that better. Um, and oh, I think he promised to have a free vote on fox hunting. Right, okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know, th- this kind of thing. Um, I feel that maybe this is Rishi doing a, doing a kind of He also came thrash. out with, um, uh, what was it? I'm going to take on the kind of wokists or something. It was really like quite kind of cringy, and it was. This but also, is, again, yeah. like you said before, like totally not on brand. Like he's not a culture <laughs> warrior. Like Rishi's seen you know, it's like many things as a politician. He's very good at presenting. Yeah. Everyone who works with him says he's incredibly charming. clever yeah. and charming and yeah. nice. But none of those tie in with being a kind of tub thumping culture warrior at all. I've never heard him say anything about any of those issues. No. Before, I don't know. He did say in his Andrew Neil interview that he would have a kind of a hard limit on the number of asylum seekers we would accept. I don't know if that makes him a a kind of culture warrior or is that actually just pragmatic and not... I think that precedes the kind of cultural, in my view, mostly nonsense that, that we have now. In the sense it was a big thing in like... In, even in the noughties, people started getting pretty angsty about immigration and asylum. Like, the idea that asylum seekers are coming here to kind of cheat, rob and steal your job has been mm. a meme in British politics for a long, long time. It's also an issue that the average Tory member cares about a little bit more than the general public. So mm. it makes sense yeah. for them to be doubling down well, on this. Well, this is what I wanted to ask you both, actually. Is what do, we, do we think there's a big divide between what Tory members want and what normal voters want? Because I think it's... I think there is a bit, but I think it's also overplayed. And I don't buy this idea that, you know, it's true what you say, that the average Tory member is a bit older, a bit whiter, a lot whiter, actually, and <laughs> more south-eastern. Yeah. But they're not all these, you know, no. red trousers, retired colonel types, are they? No, they're not. And that, that, um, that has always been a bit of a caricature, that the, the average Tory member is a kind of unsophisticated dinosaur. Um, 
you know, in the past, it was the Tory membership took a punt on David Cameron, who was perhaps the the the, the less that well, the, definitely the lesser known choice, but also was looking like a kind of taking the party in perhaps a more liberal direction. So that it's by no means a kind of given that they will go for the the most sort of gammony opinion that, yeah, that they pe- see in front of them. People always revert to oh, they chose IDS without yeah. going well, they also mm. chose David Cameron. Well, precisely. Yeah. And David Davis was a much more orthodox right winger. Mm. Yeah. Because they thought he can win. But I think I think, I think this right. comes down to exactly to what I was saying at the beginning that I think this competition is actually closer than we think because while Tory mm. members do like this sort of ideological red meat that Liz Truss is throwing them they also want to win elections and the polling does suggest that Rishi Sunak is better placed to do that so yeah. I do think that that he's still in with a chance my view on this from a we it, and as you uh, Mandy said earlier we barely t- we barely said anything about Labour mm. either on this podcast <laughs> or in just general political news they're just nowhere but one thing that strikes me is that whoever wins, like Keir Starmer's whole shtick up to now has been not being Boris Johnson. Yeah. <laughs> He's in a bit of a yeah. pickle, I think, yeah, actually. He is. And the pol- considering the Tories have been in government for 12 years and the state of inflation, public services, and all that, to be like relatively close in the polls mm. is quite remarkable. It's quite embarrassing. I think. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and you have to think also that structurally things are very different from how they were under New Labour. Scotland is now an SNP zone. So that would mean yeah. the Labour Party making massive gains in England. Um, they'd have to almost, in order to get a majority, they'd have to be taking back so many of these the seats that they held under Blair. Um, so it's quite a, it's yeah. quite a you know, big obstacles there. And they only won, they won a bunch back in 2017, but what was interesting is they actually didn't improve their vote almost at all. They put on 10,000 votes in the whole of Scotland in 2017 and won mm-hmm. 10 more MPs just because the SNP vote went down. Yeah. So they still, they haven't like done this kind of rebuild at all. Although I think Anna Sorrell is actually He's doing really, quite yeah, a good I really, job. I really rate him. Yeah. Um, um, and I think people who know about Scottish politics really do rate him and, and think that. Um, so potentially Scottish politics might get a bit more interesting. But that brings us extremely neatly yeah. onto our, our next sort of section of the podcast, which is um, Maddie wrote a column earlier this week about the SNP's creepy anglophobia. Not not just creepy, sinister anglophobia. <laughs> I think you, I don't know if you wrote the headline. I never wrote all. the headline, no. but um, but yeah. Um, I mean, so so th- this was off the back of a story that initially I read and it made me laugh. It was the news that the the um, you remember the the Queen's Platinum Jubilee book that was given out to schools. Well, SNP ministers kicked up a few... (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys are both parents, so uh, you probably get this this stuff. Um, But um, uh, the the SNP made um, a lot of complaints about the book, and and, and I think they got it withdrawn from general circulation in Scottish schools, so it was only teachers that requested the book who received it. Um, But there were also a number of complaints from civil servants um, on a range of issues, they wanted like 52, that cursed number again, 52 different amendments. Um, and they range from quite, like I think, fairly reasonable things, like, for example, referring to the Queen as Elizabeth I. I mean, maybe that's taking it too far, but north of border, she is often known as Elizabeth I rather than Elizabeth II. But it was things like they wanted to have all mention of um, Brexit and the Scottish independence referendum removed. Um, they objected to a section that described um, th- smart thermostats on the basis this, this might be triggering to people who live in poverty. And they asked for... Uh, instead, they wanted sections on the Highland clearances or the... No, sorry, the Jacobite rebellions. And um, even, for some reason, they wanted a section on the assassination of Benazir Bhutto. 
Now, this made me laugh because it was like the idea of smart thermostat being triggering is, is you know, it's quite funny. Um, but I don't know, it, it's very much of a piece with the other things that the SNP have been doing for years. And I think it's to reframe the idea of Scottish identity as being innately tied to independence and making Scottish unionists feel that they are sort of second class citizens yeah. in some way. And there's also been, you know, a, a lot of quite naked propaganda that's gone into schools. So one council issued a, a leaflet that was supposed to be a study aid um, on uh, Scottish independence for schools, but it contained numerous pro-independence arguments, very little of the opposing. And there was even a, uh, a fact sheet on Nicola Sturgeon. I mean, can you imagine if the Conservative government were releasing propaganda that similar sort of levels that was including a fact sheet on Boris Johnson and pro-conservative slogans? I think people would have something to say about it, but this yeah. kind of thing has just become par for the course in Scotland. I think the thing you mentioned there about them um, making real Scottishness synonymous with independence is a really important point. Because I, th- I feel like they are really good at the symbolism of politics in a way that perhaps the un- well, definitely the union side hasn't been. Mm-hmm. Maybe we were, but latterly, where union flags were everywhere. Now we seem most ashamed of it. But if you go to Scotland, like the saltire is everywhere. Like everything is Scott branded, like Scott Rail, like Police Scotland, you know. Um, and that kind of gives you the impression of, of separateness even before independence. I mean, Alice, you visit Scotland fairly regularly. I mean, what do you think about us? Yeah, well, I, I thought Madeleine put it brilliantly in her column when she talked about a nation can't build its sense of self on victimhood alone. And I do think that that, that separatist narrative that, that the SNP peddles, they try, they do a really good job of branding it as kind of woke and, and progressive and inclusive. But the reality mm. is it, it's the opposite. You know, there's, there's nothing progressive about putting up borders where they don't exist. And there's nothing inclusive about an identity politics that tells everyone who doesn't subscribe to that particular ideology or, or who doesn't live in Scotland, you know, the Scots abroad, that, that, that they're not truly Scottish. Well, that's quite an interesting one, because if there were, heaven forbid, um, another referendum, an enormous number of voters potentially would live in England. There's something like 800,000 Scots who live in England. Well, they didn't have the vote in the last... I know, and this would be, I think this would be a... That was one of the big sort of errors, even though they won quite handily. Would the franchise extend yes, to Scots living outside Scotland? Because they might come back and live in Scotland. I mean, in, in a general election, um, British citizens who live abroad can vote, can't they? I, I think so. I think so. I think they can. Yeah. That's a, that's a sort of, so it's kind of interesting. I really need to check yeah. this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if, if yeah. this is wrong, you can just cut but this But it's an enormous proportion yeah. of the electorate. That's the point, because yeah. they're almost all adults, the 800,000. But it's, it's also, it's basically, that message says to... I don't know, Fraser Nelson, you're not really Scottish because mm. you've chosen to move away. But he's had that. He gets yeah. that. Oh, he of, gets um, that all the time. You know, I, I see it a lot. And so, so do other. Living. Andrew Neil gets it. Lots of Scottish journalists yeah. who are pro union get it really badly. My old boss, um, Kevin Schofield, who I don't think he'll mind me saying he's the most Scottish man alive, gets it as well just because he's not like a big, big yeah. uh, fan of the Naps, which I always found absolutely hilarious. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I th- also, the other thing I mentioned in my column was the way that they use history, and this is why the book is perhaps more significant than it seems. Um, there, there's been a sort of attempt to... I think that they, they don't like to talk about ways in which Scotland flourished within the Union or ways in which mm. Scotland was a big part of... Great Britain, and that includes the British Empire, which yeah. the Scots were often at the forefront of. They were some of the most industrious in, in settling in places like Canada, all over the world, in fact. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, the Scots contributed so so greatly to, to Britain. But that doesn't fit in with the narrative. So rather than say what I think uh, 
you could say as a Scottish patriot, the union was so much better after we arrived. We right. made it what it is. Instead, they yeah. go for the kind of, oh, it's all terrible. Um, here's Bannockburn. It's like, right. why, would you, why would you go for William Wallace when you could have the Scottish Enlightenment and all of these wonderful things that happened? I think they're trying to this change the, the victimhood and stuff in Glasgow, aren't they? I don't Because they're all named after people who own plantations and stuff like this. Yeah. So they're trying to literally kind yeah. of erase the fact that not only were Scots heavily involved, but like disproportionately yeah. involved in this. But it also, in doing that, erases Scotland's past successes. I mean, Glasgow was the greatest city of the empire. It was a shipbuilding powerhouse. It was a glorious city. Uh, and if you overlook that, then you, you, yeah. you, you ignore everything that makes that city great. And in fact, now it's a city in noticeable decline. I've been yeah. going there for sort of over a decade and in that time I've seen it get worse it's now there was a survey it's like the dirtiest city in Britain yeah um, it's still it's I, love, rubbish I love I love Glasgow I, 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 I don't want to overplay it Glasgow is still beautiful <laughs> <and> <laughs> everywhere. It, but it is it's a beautiful city but it is decaying in that in that sense I mean I, I love it but I agree um, and, and of course you know it's not to say that the Britain, the British Empire hasn't. There's not a great deal that we should um, look back on and feel some not shame because I don't think we should atone for our ancestors. But perhaps you know we reflect on the the bad as well as, as the good. But the, the Scottish version it looks only at the bad and often I think tries to exonerate Scotland from its role. There was a case where um, the Scottish syllabus, the history syllabus, gave examples of slave cities in Britain and it get, it mentioned Liverpool and Bristol and. Um, a, a Scottish educational expert got in touch to say maybe Glasgow should be mentioned because it also played a very prominent role and, and they ignored him. Yeah, I think actually Bristol's quite a good example of how, kind of Colston aside, actually does quite a good job of dealing with its, let's say not even chequered, like awful past. Because there is a Commonwealth Museum in Bristol with a statue of a slave outside it and it's you know quite kind of open. And if nothing else, the kind of tearing down of the, the Colston statue has at least brought that back into some sort of um, focus, but like you say, just kind yeah. of wishing away your history is not—it doesn't really work. But just to bring this back to the campaign, um, what do we think about Liz Truss got sort of she got cheers from the audience, which is what she was going for. Mm. But she said the the um, ne- the next or well, the government, if she's in charge, should just ignore Nicola Sturgeon and that she is an attention seeker. Um, do we think this is wise? I'd, I mean, I don't. It's not necessarily helpful language, but I do think that there's a strong case for just refusing a request for a second referendum. It was meant to yeah. be once in a generation. It's absurd to be going for it again. Yeah, I mean that's what she meant. But obviously, the people. This is the other yeah. thing about, especially online Scottish nationalists, is they're incredibly like trigger happy. Oh yeah. Kind oh, of yeah. anything. Mm. Oh yeah. Like, oh, this is an insult. How dare you? <laughs> so Nicola has been. But that's what happens when you base your um, sense of self on victimhood. People mm. take things very personally. It's impossible to have a And they've a civilized all got salt tires in the bios as yeah, well, you know, instantly. Of course, of course. But people are still getting very angry about, you know, stuff that happened in the Middle Ages. It's like, right. these are still live issues. <laughs> yeah. So, Alice, you mentioned that Glasgow, sadly, is in something of a state of decline. I don't want um, my family from Glasgow listening to this. Alice loves Glasgow and all who dwell within it. I just want to make that very, very clear. Um much closer to where we are now, we record this at our office, which is right in the middle of Westminster, a stone's throw from Parliament. And a big story recently that um, you wanted to pick up on is the, the state of the actual estate is really quite dangerous. I think I saw something in the papers the other day about how it could kind of burn down at any moment. 
Yeah, I, I, I feel like people think that Parliament is some kind of gin palace, but anyone who's worked there knows that it, it's not just shabby and like mouse infested and, you know, freezing cold in summer, uh, sorry, in winter and boiling in summer. It's actively dangerous. It, there have been 44 fires since 2012. It's stuffed with asbestos. When I was working there back in 2018, a massive bit of masonry fell off the building and smashed a car. You know, that could have been a person. Um, So it's actively not just like an inadequate workplace, it's a dangerous workplace. And I think it's also a kind of metaphor for our politics, not just because of the kind of House of Usher vibes, but because of the complete failure by MPs to grip this problem. They've known since... I think 2016, that basically the only solution to this problem is to kick them all out and spend about 10 billion in five years fixing it, and they've just failed to do it. They keep 10 billion, is that the I mean, several, but knowing British like construction projects run by the government, it's probably Uh, gonna like triple. Yeah, yeah, it'd be the new HS2. I think six to ten was one estimate, it will likely be more than that. But but instead of actually just getting on with fixing this problem, they keep changing the commissioning new reports and changing committees that are advising on this and I just think it's an utter failure to grip an urgent problem which may have you know possibly fatal consequences yeah Yeah. I mean this is you know there was a great fire I think it was 1812 but don't we have to check 1834 oh 34 that's right sorry I've got I've got it I've got muddled I think there might have been some other fires before but anyway um you know they managed to save Westminster Hall but that was only almost through blind chance it was not unlike um the notre dame fire Mm. where they i think they basically said leave the rest of it and we'll have to save the hall so they put everything and that's what they were able to save but the rest of the medieval palace crumbled and i mean i used to work in westminster too and i can remember uh, it's not quite as dangerous as the masonry but i've got a terrible terrible phobia of mice (laughs) so it was the the worst place to work (laughs) from that perspective but i remember when some i was at my desk and I, i was working quite late um and then I had the, the usual scuttling noises in the ceiling, which you get so used to that I, even <laughs> even with my phobia, I just tried to ignore it. But then there was also a hole in the ceiling, and I watched as a mouse went scuttling along and then fell through the uh. hole and landed on the desk opposite me. And I literally uh. grabbed my... I, a lot well, of people shuddering now. I, I literally yeah. screamed, like like um, like psycho shower moment, and I just like ran away. Um, and that was, I think, that was... That was in, in one of the newer bits of Parliament. Mm. So I, I, God only knows what the actual palace itself was like. I think the thing that surprises people is the, 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 um, the disparity between different parts of the building as well. Yeah. It's not We've described the, the dangerous aspect. There are just wires everywhere mm. as well. But it's just like really dingy as well for somewhere that is the kind of seat of government. You yeah. wander around and all of it looks like the carpets haven't been changed since the 50s. Oh boy, like, it's massive. I mean, yeah. there are some bits that look really great and often there's, yeah. there's scaffolding in a different bit each time you go. So it's almost like this enormous sprawling estate. There's always a bit of it that's being fixed, but it takes probably quite a while to come to some bits of yeah. the palace. And also, like, the conditions MPs, some MPs work in are insane. Like, they're like tiny little box rooms, often with two staff. I mean, as you work for an MP, I mean, it's not like, it's not a luxurious existence for a lot of them, is it? No, we, when I first started, we, our office was so small that, you know, we, normally there were four members of staff in there, and if the MP herself had to come, she had to sit on the bin because there wasn't <laughs> enough chairs Sorry, for I her. Sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but that is... Um, but I also think that the, 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 the structure of the building, the, the, the fabric of the kind of seat of democracy contributes to some of its terrible cultural problems. I think, 
you know, the, the fact that there, that there are kind of members-only areas, that some of the mm. nicest bits, the beautiful terrace, the lovely smoking mm. the Lord's room, bars, are right? only allowed, <laughs> it's only members that are allowed in there, whereas in fact there's, you know, thousands of staff who, for whom there are no-go areas. Yeah. And I think this completely contributes to that sense of impunity and to the power dynamics that, that lead to a lot of the cultural problems we have in our politics. It's written into the building, you know, mm. hierarchy and power just uh, mm. unbalances and yeah so just to finish off what do you think the best idea would be if we're going to do this massive refurb which i'm not hugely hopeful of we'll do the british thing and muddle through doing bit oh, yeah. by bit by yeah, bit yeah. Until, until it burns it. down yeah. Yeah. yeah until it burns down this seems to, that is a, i think that's like a metaphor we're going to do the housing policy we have until it's like we actually have to just tear up the entire yeah. 1947 mm. act um yes. what would your preference be though everyone for would it be decant to literally down the road, the QE2 centre or something like that, which is a big kind of conference centre? What do we think about, to get back to regional pay and things like this, the idea of depositing MPs somewhere in York or Birmingham? I or think you have whatever. to remember on that that it's not just MPs. MPs have staff who work for them. You're expecting you know, low-paid yeah. young graduates to, to decant from London and... So I, Might I think be cheaper for them, though, right? oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe people have lives um, that that are you know. So I, I also, think also just has think to how be... much it would cost for. I mean, I assume that they it would be insane to move every department. There's a yeah, reason. Yeah, that's my proximity big proximity yeah. is, is a very useful thing. Um, can you imagine how much money would be spent covering people's train tickets so yeah. that they could get down to talk to departments, to talk or just to, or even the cabinet? The, the houses need to interact with each other as well. Yes, so you don't have two chambers in different cities. It would be like totally EU style. We can just have yeah. them all move. Every it six would. It, it would be a bit like the the, the Strasbourg rigmarole. Yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah, with all the kind of gravy train. Guys, thank you all very much indeed for joining us. We are out of time. Um, Madeline, thank you so much. Guys, do be sure to read Madeline's excellent columns and sketches in the Telegraph <laughs> every week. Um, and also, please do tune in next week for what I think is going to be an excellent episode of the podcast. It's called Boosters versus Doomsters. We have the original booster, Sam Bowman, against Tim Pitt. Uh, not quite a self-described doomster, but we'll get onto that uh, during the podcast. So please do tune in for that next week as well. Thanks very much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.